0: Let's face it, this is not the worst thing you've caught me
1: down. You look nervous.
0: I'm in a glass case of emotion! Why
1: so look let go of me? I think you're on my neck, Me.
0: That is why the warriors have come! I'll be back to have vengeance! A freaking bone
2: here.
3: A martini, a shaken monster. The force will be with you always. Avengers, assemble
0: in the red corner, standing six foot two inches tall, weighing in at 245 pounds.
2: Here is the eclectic collective. Welcome, Facebook family. Good morning, good Saturday morning to you. I want to welcome everybody to uh, to the show today. We have a really special guest with us today. We have historical fiction novelist Neil Perry Gordon. Neil, welcome to the show, man. Thank you for taking time out of your Saturday for us.
1: Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. It's really Absolutely. nice to be here.
2: So we're gonna uh, uh, we're gonna dive into uh, your works in and a little bit later in the show. But right now, what we want to start off with doing. Is finding a little bit more about Neil the person, and uh, first of all, um, so you have you're a novelist at this point in your life. Um, what uh, what were you doing prior to being a novelist?
1: Well, career wise, yes. Well, I still and I still do. I ha- I have a business. I have a window covering, mm-hmm. uh, drapery, and upholstery business.
3: Oh,
2: nice! Uh, That's really
1: work cool. in the, New York, New York, New York, the area. And, uh, <laughs> I'm still doing it, though I haven't done it in the past six weeks because we've been shut down mm-hmm. completely. So uh, it gives me a lot of time to write. Um, so yeah. I've been at home time. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I've, been in, I've been doing that all my life, basically. I uh, grew up in a family business. Uh, father, grandfather. So as a kid, I was working in their stores, cutting roller shades.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And then in my 20s, I started my own business down in Florida where I lived for 10 years. Had a drapery workroom. Moved it up here to the New York area and been doing that ever since. So, over 35 years in the business. Cool. Oh, wow.
2: Really awesome. So, um, what, uh, what inspired you to become a novelist?
1: Well, um, going back to my career for a second, I, I did a lot of writing uh, there uh, for magazines, two different magazines, trade magazines, wrote two different trade books. Uh, one on coaching for designers, and one called an architect's guide to engineered shading solutions—more technical type of things. Uh, so I was always writing. I always wanted to to write and enjoy the process of writing, as uh, I like being creative. Um, and it wasn't until I took a, a writing class, a creative writing class, a couple of years ago, that sort of you know got my engines going uh-huh. to become a, a fiction writer. Um, so once I got started. I haven't stopped. I mean, I've been like a <laughs> a man on a mission. You know, I just, uh, just love the process of writing. I love the creative, uh, the creative outlet that it provides for me. Uh, I like getting it written, getting it edited, getting it published, hearing feedback from people, reviews, uh-huh. uh, having conversations. When people want to say, we want to talk about <laughs> your book, I'm like, yeah, that's my favorite topic to talk about. <laughs> <So> <laughs> I love it.
0: Well, you chose a very unique uh, area to uh, go into with writing, uh, historical fiction. I mean, that's a unique area for someone who is, uh, you know, starting out in uh, fiction writing to get into. Is there a background in history with you that you wanted to bring into uh, your novels?
1: Well, it's more of my personality. So I don't like to do something unless I'm really learning something from the same time. So what I like about reading historical fiction is that you can learn history in a way that's a little more digestible than reading it dry uh, or just a nonfiction version of it. Uh-huh. So the entertainment part of, of fiction tied in with the historical facts that you learn about, uh-huh. uh, that I enjoy. So when I think I'm going to spend certain amount of hours, certain amount of days, weeks of my life reading a book, I want to learn something from it, walk away from uh, from that that experience with some more knowledge than when I started. So I like reading historical fiction. So that's why I like writing about it. So it's the same process. So when I pick a topic of historical fiction, I'll go back and research that time, find out what was going on, who were the significant uh, players back then. And I would learn a lot. I do learn a lot from doing that. So. it's uh, it's it's what provides me with my inspiration. It provides me with my background, the color of my stories. Uh-huh. So it's not so much being a history buff, uh-huh. but more so I love learning from the process of writing. Um, though not all my books have been, well, most of my books have been historical fiction. One is not. That's that's um, the writing. <clears throat> that's, that falls on the genre of metaphysical fiction, uh-huh. uh, which is more a little more spiritual it's good versus evil in the dream world um so there's not it's not historical fiction at all but every other novel so far has all been historical fiction
2: so what uh what led you to write that one specific one that was a different genre what led you down that road
1: well the first book i wrote a cobbler's tale Mm -hmm. um was about my great grandparents um so um and there's i i I, I dabbled in a little metaphysical fiction in that first novel. So um, my third book, The Righteous One, is a sequel to that first book that takes place uh, in 1960 as opposed to 1910 when the first book came out. Um, and I, I, I go further into that metaphysical world um, where good versus evil uh, has to fight this battle in the dream world. And it's also, I touch on the idea of <laughs> consciousness, where the idea there is, does the consciousness live on after the body passes? Uh-huh. So is the conscious uh, you know can it can it die? Um and how can you how can we um, relate to the consciousness while we're in our bodies and try to make that connection? So that's where. How has how that story uh, evolved? But I do have a little touch of metaphysical fiction and other novels as well. Uh-huh. Um, the one that's coming out in June, um, June twentieth, actually the release date of my next book is on the summer solstice, uh, June twentieth, twenty twenty. It's called called Hope City, and that's a, takes place in uh, eighteen ninety eight in Alaska during the gold rush, oh, okay. and uh, a little bit of a spiritual element in in that. Uh, it really revolves around um, the story of a, a, of a young a man, a seventeen-year-old um, teenager, who goes up to Alaska during the gold rush, and it's sort of like his trip down the rabbit hole.
0: Oh, that's really cool, man! So, it, as a kid, as a kid, did you read a lot? Like, there had to have been. Like, I know that you've been writing with, uh, you know, your career pr- uh, prior to being a novelist and everything. But growing up, like, did you have a huge book collection? Did you love reading uh, yeah,
1: like that? I love, I love having books. I mean, to me, a collection of books, a library of books is always, you know, just it, it's just something that is very attractive to have a lot of books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think I have more books than I've read. Um you know, it's just collecting them and having them. It's just something about them. And, I'm, and a lot of people are that way, just having the books, it's sort of having your own source of knowledge uh, always at your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Of course, that's that's before the Internet. That's before ebooks books uh-huh. uh, were really available. I've certainly toned down my library uh, significantly since the Internet and the access of ebooks. <coughs> you know, everything is so easily accessible, which also... Uh, it's interesting, too, as a writer, because um, I don't think I could have been a writer 30 years ago uh-huh. uh, with, with using a typewriter, number <laughs> one. <laughs> that would have taken forever. And then having to do research and actually going to the library to have yeah. to do research. Oh, yeah. Now, everything is right on my laptop. I can write. Like I can do my research. Yeah. Everything is right here as a tool for a writer. There's nothing greater than the tools we have today. Uh, because I also could take it with me. I can, you know, if I'm going to an well, when I used to go to airports, I would take my laptop with me. Um, wouldn't mind waiting for appointments uh, in a doctor's office or before an appointment to see a customer. I would take my laptop with me and just try to get some writing. Okay. Uh, yeah. So it's 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 uh, that that part of the process has become very convenient as a writer. Yeah. Have you uh, have you ever tried to do science fiction? Um, not yet. I am a big uh, lover of science fiction, um, especially Isaac Asimov. I read a bunch of his books, uh, Ray Bradbury. Love actually, Bradbury. I love Ray Bradbury. I met Ray Bradbury in the 80s, actually went to a, um, hear him speak once, and it was a very small gathering, and I got to meet him, which was kind of cool. Um, yeah, I'm a big lover of science fiction. I haven't dabbled in that yet, but um, you know, I have a lot of, lot of writing to still go, so we'll see.
0: Well, you know, you can do a lot of historical fiction with, uh, you know, space exploration and you know people uh, who are astronauts and you know stuff like that. So, you know, if you want to like mix that in with your science fiction, I mean, that would be pretty fun to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, there was a movie. um, I think there was some some Western movie with some sort of aliens visiting some Western uh, Cowboys
2: (coughs) versus aliens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah
3: yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's kind of Ford and uh daniel craig
1: daniel craig yeah.
0: yep. yep do you have uh do you have a role model uh that you grew up with that kind of inspired your type of writing or do you think uh or is your writing something that you try to keep uh you know unique to what you're creating
1: well, you know, I, I listened to, uh, and especially recently, you know, masterclass, have you heard of the masterclass yeah. course? Oh, yeah, oh yeah. yeah. Very good. So yeah. there's a bunch of writers on masterclass is Dan Brown is on there. Neil Gaiman, James Patterson, um, Bun- uh, David Balducci, um, some the big, the big superstar writers are all on there and hearing them speak for like 10 hours on their writing process has really been amazing. Uh, to be able to do that, and you hear the best of the best. It's like uh, if you're a painter, and, and we're allowed to talk to Salvador Dali and and, and Picasso and yeah. Van Gogh, you know, right. while they're still alive. Or you know, if you're a musician and you can have conversations with Beethoven and Mozart, you know, so that's wonderful as a writer to be able to hear how these pros do it, um, mm-hmm. and and it's also nice to hear how some of their process is similar to some of mine. Uh-huh. Um, so. You know, so that to me is, is a way of uh, connecting to so called role models, I, I, su- I suppose. Uh-huh. Um, not that I've read many of their books. Uh, Dan Brown, of course, I think I've read all his books. Uh-huh. Um, and Neil Gaiman is uh, too, I've read his books. But I'm a big lover of Stephen King. Um, uh, Ken Follett, a big writer in historical fiction. Um, <coughs> your, like that?
2: Uh, when you want to pick up and read to be entertained, who's your go to? to read? Who's your, what author is your go-to?
1: Well, you, you always are entertained by Stephen King. I mean, that's always a go-to. He's always, you know, no matter what it is, you know, he's just able to get right into the core of someone's mind, uh-huh. um, fictional characters' minds that no one else can do. And he does it with such oh, seamless ease. And what's nice about Stephen King's writing, as well as a lot of the professionals, is that you don't hear his voice. Mm -hmm. You know, the author's voice is never, never in the way. You're just in the story. Your mind is into the story. You know, you never have to, you never hear the the writer behind it or the narrator telling the story, which is the key, I think, to being a really good writer. Okay. What is your, when you write, what is your process? Do
0: you need the room to be quiet? Do you listen to music?
1: Um, Do you need like sound, like. Outside, is it better for you to write inside? Is it better for you to write outside? The perfect the perfect writing condition is outside on a beautiful day, um, sitting out in my chair. I have the perfect chair. I have the perfect little uh, rack that I put on my lap to hold my laptop. Um, and uh, that's the perfect condition uh, for me to write. Otherwise, I'll, if it's not nice, I'll sit in- indoors and look out. Like I'm looking out. And this is my writing spot where I'm sitting now. Mm-hmm. Indoor. Spot looking out is a nice reservoir there, <clears throat> and um, so I need quiet. Though I can't have distractions. Right, um, music doesn't work for me um, in terms of writing. Um, and it just I need to have that silence because I I hear I have to hear the words in my head. Uh-huh. I don't need to I don't need to read aloud what I'm writing. I did when I first started. Now my voice my, in my head is enough to make sure that I'm on the right path. Uh huh. So, uh, yeah, so I have that type of process. I also can, you know, prop myself up in bed too, um, in the early morning and, and, and write. So yeah, there's a couple of favorite spots and funny enough, you know, um, back before the quarantine, I, I found sitting in Starbucks too, was also uh, a good place for me, even though lots of distractions there, I could sit there and write. okay. That's cool. How do you,
0: uh, uh, how do you beat writer's block or have you hit that bump yet?
1: I don't, no, I don't hit writer's block. What happens, what I believe, and it's, it, writer's block is, I don't know, some BS term, <laughs> I think. <laughs> and it's because wh- why I say it's BS, it's, it, it's, not, a, it's not that writer's block is, is BS. It's the fact that it's it's more universal in life. Anytime that, you know, we come up to a barrier, no matter what it is, if we're writing, if whatever we're doing, uh, if we're doing schoolwork, uh-huh. Um what if we have some sort of challenge in life uh-huh. we have the tendency to want to stop and quit. Yeah. Say okay, I don't want I don't want to go I don't want to be, go through that barrier. It's too hard. Yeah. Um so what I say to my son "Is you got to push through it. You're going to come up against these barriers all the time in life whether it's writing or, or some sort of project you're doing or something at work. You gotta always push through. When that difficult time comes, you push through it and you try to get to the other side. So that is what writer's block, to me, is. So if, if I come up at art where I, okay, I'm stuck, I'll put it down, I'll walk away, and maybe I'll go out and do something else, come back to it, um, and then push my way through it. And that's how I deal with that.
3: Cool.
1: That's, that's great.
2: So let's uh, that's so let's walk let's walk through. So you've got currently you've got four books out. Is that correct?
1: Four published novels, yes. Yeah.
2: So let's walk through each one of those, and let's talk a little bit more in detail about *A Cobbler's Tale*. So walk us through um, what you know, event, historical events, time frame that this is based around, and uh, what is the overarching story of that book?
1: Well, *A Cobbler's Tale* is based on the life of my great grandparents, okay. who uh, came from a small town. Um, it's a, a Jewish village called a shtetl, which are um, poor Jewish villages in Eastern Europe. Uh-huh. Uh, in southern Poland, it wasn't called Poland back then in 1910. It was part of the Archie Hungarian Empire. Uh-huh. And in 1910, at that time, um, lots of men were first coming over to a lot in, in lower their Lower East Side in New York to get established, move their business over and find a place to live before they brought their family. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So my great grandfather did that. He came over and left his pregnant wife back at home and three three young children, one of which was my grandfather and left them there in, uh, in Poland while he came here. Um, and so when he came here, he got himself involved, um, with some, some gangsters in the lower East side. Now I've embellished his life, uh, up to the, up to the gangster part it was true and then and <clears throat> I, I made him much more adventurous and, and courageous than he really was so he got himself busy here um, distracted uh, and then 1914 war broke out in in, in Eastern Europe all, all throughout Europe World War one broke out mm-hmm. and uh, he got the, his family was stuck he couldn't go get them so I'm not going to go further than that mm-hmm. by telling the story because oh, its yeah, a, so- it gives some them- Oh. Yeah, no. But that, that's a <laughs> story. Um, so it takes place in 1910 between uh, Eastern Europe and the Lower East Side of New York uh, during the time of massive immigration coming into this country. Millions and millions of people were coming. Three to four million people a year were coming into America. Uh-huh. Uh, not just Jews, you know, had Irish and Germans, Italians uh, oh, coming in. Uh, so it was a massive immigration. So you, you learn a lot about Ellis Island, what it was like. Okay. There, um, as em- immigrants came in, um, the the process of being entered into this country, uh-huh. um, a lot about living in the Lower East Side during that time. There was over five hundred thousand Jews living in the Lower East Side of Manhattan, oh, wow. more Jews than anywhere else in the world at that time. Um, oh wow! Uh, it was it was and people were packed into tenement buildings and just you know horrible living conditions. Um, so there's a lot to write about uh-huh. during stories like that when there's <laughs> a lot of conflict. So that's the Cobblers Tale.
0: Okay. Uh, uh, well, wait. until we go uh, before we go to the next novel. Uh, the the main the main character uh, uh, is it Pinkus or? Uh, <laughs> Pincus. No. If this were to be made into a movie, who would you want to uh, play that character?
1: <laughs> I got to bring
0: the nerd in.
1: Good question. <laughs> yeah. Well. Um... Well, I mean, I'll describe Pincus to you. and Maybe you could think of somebody. <laughs> 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 All right, do
2: that. Do that.
1: So Pincus is a, a slight man, a uh, thin pencil mustache. He wears a uh, little round uh, horn rim glasses. Um, uh, he's kind of a grouchy guy, um, not very well liked, um, you know, Dark hair, thinning hair. Uh So he's not a handsome, virile man. He is more of a meek. You know, you would look at him and never find him very impressive. In fact, when he was living uh, in 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 uh, Poland, he was never really respected Mm -hmm. among his peers. There was two types of boys, two social strata of boys back then. Uh You had you had the the Torah scholars, the ones who were smart and and were selected. By the rabbi to study the Torah their whole life uh-huh. so and they will be supported by the village so they were the, the prime, the smart ones and anyone who can marry any woman who could a girl who can marry a Torah scholar has, has got one of the you know the prize men. Uh-huh. Then there was a second tier of, of men or boys who would probably go into their father's business you know as a merchant they would be a cobbler or, or a tailor or a uh-huh. baker or a butcher. so Pincus was a cobbler. <laughs> <laughs> he was never respected like he was like he wished to be, and so he always had a trip on his shoulder. Uh-huh. So when he came here to the Lower East Side, all of a sudden, if you were a Torah scholar, that doesn't mean anything anymore because you had nothing to do here. But if you were a cobbler or a baker or a carpenter, you had a skill, and 500,000 people, you, you had something you could market. And all of a sudden, the table turned. So right. um, where the man was disrespected, all of a sudden, he was respected. So there's a little synopsis of the man who can you think of
0: i, I can only when you, as you describe him the only person i could think of is the typecasted adam sandler i would think of the sandler.
1: same thing
3: i was like, it <laughs> like adam family
0: really typecasted into those kind of roles those right yeah. you know so yeah well, that's, that's
3: well
1: maybe maybe steve buscemi steve yeah. he's a little older you yeah, but well, Steve Bushima has more of the look than that yeah. has, they're, they're a little bulkier type of a guy. Yeah, I was thinking Bushimi for the look and Sandler for the Jewishness. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
3: You,
2: yeah. Said, <laughs> it. you <laughs> said
3: it, Micah. <laughs> yeah. Hey. Actually, he did. I was just thinking it.
2: <laughs> All right. Uh, let's let's go to the let's go to one of your other novels. Uh, walk us through um, a synopsis of Moonflower. What's that about?
1: Well, Moonflower takes place in the 1670s. Um, uh, right before New York became New York, it was called New Amsterdam, and the Dutch lived here. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, it, it, the Dutch lived here. They called it New Amsterdam. Up Albany was called Beverwick. Uh, indigenous people still living among, among everyone else. Manhattan uh was called Manhattan back then um, the Lenape Lindians were <coughs> there uh-huh. and at this point they're being further and further pushed away back in 1670s um the only occupied place of Manhattan was the lower Manhattan uh-huh. and wall street really was th- a wall that separated the lower Manhattan from the wildness of the rest of the island okay so wall street was a wall it was a picket fence that they had guards going up and down to keep the dangerous indigenous people out. Wow. Um, so that was what it was like back then. And this is a story about a, a young boy, his name is Lucas Peterson. And The book begins when his, uh, he's, he's, he's going out to venture and be, he wants to live the life with uh, an indigenous Native American tribe. And he, he wants to search for the great spirit. So he is sitting with a shaman And the shaman is about to administer to him a concoction uh, of seeds coming from the plant of the moonflower, Uh which is a flower that only blooms at night. And the moonflower is a real plant. It's actually called the datura. It grows wild. You can actually, it still grows around here. The seeds of the datura plant are hallucinogenic and if you take too much of it, I've never done it, but as I've read, you can take too much of it. It's very dangerous. Um, but under the auspices of the shaman, he's going to take this before he goes on out on his journey to discover the great spirit, which, of course, is the almighty God. Um, so the shaman says, after you take this, you're going to completely lose your memory. You'll know you'll, you'll remember one thing of anything who you are. So I'm going to he hands him a quill and parchment and says, uh, Lucas, write everything down, every memory from your youngest mem- first memory. To this morning, uh-huh. write it all down because tomorrow, when you wake up after you drink the moonflower, you'll have no memory. The only thing you'll have to to show you of who you are will be this document that you've written down of your life. Uh-huh. So he writes everything down. This is how the book begins. And he takes the moon. He takes the the moonflower drink, and he wakes up. And of course, his memory is gone. All he has is this document there, but it's all just words on a page. It could be anybody's life. There's no emotional connection to those words. Uh You know, what's a memory if if it's not your own? It means nothing. I mean, uh, emotionally. So that's how the book begins and how his journey, uh, his epic journey uh, into the rest of the story uh, commences from there.
2: You, I mean, I haven't. We haven't even talked about the other two books yet. I'm already sold. The the historical mm-hmm. element to your writing is just insanely fascinating to me. Um, I'm because you've, I mean, just in this short conversation, uh, you te- talking about what how New York used to be and how it developed during that time frame. I am just yeah. complete. I'm sold. I'm going to read these books because that is <laughs> incredibly fascinating to me.
0: Let me. Can I also say that it. I, I see some courage in your writing to, of what you're writing about as well because of uh, like bringing up like the slave coast of West Africa and stuff like this. <laughs> a lot of novelists these days don't want to touch subjects like that or bring them mm-hmm. in in any form or fashion, even though it's not the you know front center of the story, but mention these things, even though they were part of the history of the world pretty much. Um, so, you know, like just, you know, hearing your uh, uh, descriptions of these things and, you know, uh, you know, reading them for myself, like I, I see a lot of uh, courage in your writing to bring these historical elements within your story for realism. So,
1: Well, thank you. Appreciate that. Um, that's something I do strive for. I think, you know, as a writer or as an artist, you're always trying to to expand and go beyond what you feel comfortable writing about or creating. Um, that's the only time you grow. I, I, I'm working on a manuscript right now, which is going to head off to my editor uh, next month, uh, which is on a very touchy subject, and I wasn't sure I, I was able to go there. Uh, it's called White Slave, and it's about um, uh, uh, these slaves. Uh, actually, again, we're going back to um, uh, Poland in 1920s, Um, where these Argentinian, but it's a a story about Jewish men, rich Argentinian Jewish men, um, uh, coming to, uh, Poland in the 1920s and luring young Jewish girls out of their villages, out of their shtetls to marry rich Argentinian men, but it was a farce and they would bring them down to Buenos Aires and put them in brothels as sex slaves.
3: Oh, wow. Um, Wow.
1: So, um, yeah, so it's, uh, you talk about something where it takes a little courage to write, that, that requires saying, okay, am I going to go there? Yeah. Because, you know, you, you, get right. to, you get to scenes there where you, you really have to make it real. And, you're like, you know, can I do this? Right. So, uh, yeah, you, you have to push yourself to go there. So I, we'll see. We'll see how my editor likes it. Um, <laughs> That's always my, my first test is getting it past her.
2: <laughs> All right. So uh, let's, let's walk through um, the righteous one.
1: Yeah, well, I mentioned that before. That's a sequel to A Cobblers Tale. It takes mm-hmm. place in 1960. So um, the Kab- uh, Righteous One uh, is about, um, there's, in Jewish mysticism, there's something called Kabbalah. You mm-hmm. may have heard of Kabbalah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's like the, the, the mysticism of Judaism. Mm-hmm. And according to Kabbalah, there's, there's something called a tzaddik. The tzaddik are 36 individuals that are on the earth at any one time that are considered the hand of God. So they have this special connection, spiritual connection to Hashem, which in Judaism is called we say God, we call him Hashem. Um so he they this person has this connection. So my main character is a tzaddik, uh-huh. though he's like like a reluctant Sadiq at this point, yeah. um, because he has this ability. But he's a cobbler. He's just lived his life ever since he had his a couple of incidents when he was younger and hasn't really practiced, not that you can practice being a tzaddik or had any experiences. Uh But he's called upon to resurrect this ability because an evil counterpart to the tzaddik, a rasha, has has come out uh, and has been uh, taking advantage of uh, people in the New York metropolitan area as a gangster. And so he has been called upon to battle this Rasha because no one else could battle him, and the power of this Rasha is he could foretell events before they occur, and he does that through his dreams. So he he knows the score of the giant game before the giants are about to play, so he can he can make bets on the giants game. He knows when real estate deals are going to happen ahead of time, so he can make moves. He knows when uh, people other gangsters are going to make hits and others, so he could defend themselves. So he has this ability. And so he's taken it to an evil uh, end, of course. Um, mm-hmm. So they have they've, they've know, some people have noticed this, call upon him to do this. Now, the only way that the Sadiq can battle the Rasha uh-huh. is not in the regular physical world, but in the dream world. Okay. So mm-hmm. while Rasha can move about in the dream world skillfully, the psychic has to learn how to do that through what's called lucid dreaming. You might have heard the term lucid yeah, dreaming. Yeah. It's knowing how to be awake in your dreams, yeah. to be aware that you're dreaming. And then, okay, I know I'm dreaming. I'm going to fly now. So you may have had that moment. A couple of people had that moment. People had that moment several times in their lives. I've had it a handful of times where I knew I was dreaming. Yep. But mm-hmm. there's ways of actually becoming lucid by practicing certain techniques
3: Okay,
1: uh, and you can actually do this. So I I delve into that and uh, the stories about how my Sadiq Moshe the cobbler mm-hmm. uh, learns how to become lucid in his dreams so he can meet the Rasha in the dream world and battle, and that's where this this battle takes place.
0: Man, again, so I see a young Al Pacino in this role. <laughs> <laughs> now we have a good and evil situation going on. I was I was actually I was actually going to say Keanu Reeves. Okay, oh, yeah, yeah, I can go with Keanu Reeves. I can get yeah, but see, like, I, I can't see Keanu Reeves without a gun in his hand, and I don't <laughs> see a gun in this ca- in this character's hand. No, like, but, I mean, I, I could, like, I uh, could see him. Hand
2: tools. I could see him playing that lucid dream. I mean, that just I, to me, I just see him pulling that off. I just that, that would be fantastic.
0: Again, but I see, I, I see this character with like hand tools instead of guns. So it's like, hey, I can totally see a young Al Pacino taking like a like a hammer or something. Hey, <laughs>
2: like, hey, the, John Wick didn't need anything. He didn't need a gun. He could he yeah, was killing true. people <laughs> with, you know, things in a an antiques shop. So <laughs> Yeah,
0: that's very true.
2: But again, I'm another story I'm sold on. That is just incredibly That's I don't I've heard of lucid dreaming, but I I've never read on the subject. I um I've heard it brought up in story storytelling, but I've never actually learned about yeah.
1: Well, you'll learn about it in this book. I, I do. I do, do a little bit of teaching about it in there.
0: That's fantastic. Well, oh, wow. you know, the it's always popular when you read something about you know good versus evil and oh, uh, yeah. you know like the ultimate battle. So, it's, yeah, I can get on board.
2: So uh, let's walk through the Bomb Squad.
1: Well, Bomb Squad is strictly historical fiction. It takes place. Um, it begins. In uh, 1916, uh, J- June 30th, 1916, at midnight, there's a massive explosion of Black Tom Island, uh-huh. which was an armaments depot located right behind the Statue of Liberty, about 2,000 feet away. Um, this is the time when World War One has broken out, but America is still neutral in the war. So German spies have detonated uh, this armaments depot and blew it up. Uh, on that night. And it was a massive explosion. I mean, windows blew out through Manhattan down the Jersey shore. I mean, it was, it was felt for miles away. The massive damage was done to the Statue of Liberty. The reason why the Germans were doing it is a lot of Germans were here. Um, there were actually a lot of Germans were stranded here because when the war broke out, um, all the lot of German sailors were, were stuck here and uh, their ships uh, were quarantined because it was too dangerous to cross over the Atlantic to go back home. So mm-hmm. all throughout the Jersey side, uh, there were a lot of Germans. So uh, German spies were here, and they were trying to prevent the United States from entering the war by causing havoc mm-hmm. um, by, and hopefully distracting the Americans, not thinking this is worth it to go into the war. So the Bond squad is a story of, of two, uh, two German-Americans uh, I the, I sub, give the subtitle Clash of the Patriots. Uh-huh. So one German American is a doctor of uh, administrator and a doctor of Ellis Island Immigrant Hospital, Doctor Harold Schwartz, and he's a German spy. Okay, him and his father. His father was a lifelong friend of Kaiser Wilhelm uh-huh. and a uh, and an armament dealer, and they live in New York City, and they're the ones behind all this espionage going on in the city and trying to cause havoc. And my other, uh, my, my protagonist is also a German American, but he's a New York City police detective, Max Rothman. And he's, he's a loyal American, patriotic American. Um, So he's called upon by the British secret service, uh, secret intelligence service called the SIS to establish the bomb squad. So he puts together this bomb squad, which is five men, German speaking men, each with a different skill set to uh, uncover this espionage that's going on by Harold Schwartz and his father. Uh-huh. So it's this battle of of wits between these two men. Um, it, it covers the New York metropolitan area during the war. I end up in the epicenter of German power in Berlin at Kaiser Wilhelm's palace uh-huh. uh, during the story. And uh, it's the clash of the patriots, two men who think they're on the right side of history.
3: Yeah,
1: Of course, on, only one ends up really truly being. Yeah. Um, that's that's the story of the bomb squad
2: Golly, that is, that's so, amazing.
1: so what is your
0: favorite historical uh research that you've done
1: well you know i do i, I get excited of, over <laughs> my of, of what i as i move along like now i just finished hope city which is coming out in june june 20th and that's <laughs> about the um the Alaskan gold rush mm-hmm. in 1898 in a little town called Hope, Alaska, which is still there. Now I've been to Hope every year for the past 12 years I visit. they have friends there. Mm-hmm. So, so the, I liked doing that research of, of what that was going on then because that brought me into learning about the gold rush of the Klondike mm-hmm. uh, in Canada, which is a massive gold rush where 30,000 people came to Dawson city in unbelievable conditions. Um, you I know, was able to read about Jack, Jack London, a um, you know, great writer at the time. Uh, so fascinating story that also now has led me to my new manuscript, which I'm just starting, about Nome, Alaska, which had the gold rush in 1900, which brings in Wyatt Earp. Uh, and Wyatt Earp had, a, had a, uh, a saloon in Nome in 1900 called the Dexter.
3: Uh-huh.
1: Uh, so his, his thing was he wasn't into gold. But he was into mining the miners, as he called it. So he wanted to make money off the miners okay. yet, he was selling whiskey, uh, and and whores, <laughs> and winnings. <Wow. laughs> whiskey winnings and, and whores, um, which any good saloon would have, of course, yeah. back in the day. Oh, yeah. um, you know, so uh, yeah, that those were some exciting times. So you know, I knew about Wyatt Earp's history of course with tombstone but i learned a lot more you know he he was also had a big scandal in san francisco uh, some years later after tombstone where he was actually a referee in a heavyweight boxing match um and he he became the referee and actually threw the fight oh wow uh, he had some bad press from that so some interesting stories about his life so i'm trying he'll be one of my characters in my new book uh as well um, and the whole story about Nome. And I visited Nome uh, several years ago. Uh, it's an interesting city on the Bering Strait. You know, remember Sarah Palin saying she could see Russia from her window? Yes. Um, yeah. But when in Nome, you almost can't see Russia from your window. That's okay. how close you are. Oh. So, yeah. So, the, the, the research is so much fun to do. Um, you know, you can get caught up in the research. Yep. Uh, and uh, but it's it's it makes part of the It's part of the process is part of what you enjoy doing. So that's why I like historical fiction, because it's something you research. OK, well,
0: cool. I'm going to ask, right. I'm gonna ask a, uh, a question that might be biased on your part, then you might might not be able to answer. But out of all these characters you've created, is there one you relate to or that you like the most that you enjoy creating the most as in character development?
1: I just beat Bane. Um, one character that I like the most. Um, I think my newest character. Well, I have a couple. In I'm sorry to to stumble here oh, a little bit, fine, but yeah. it's it's a, it's a deep um, question. Yeah. Well, you know, it's a question I haven't thought about, so it takes a, a moment to, uh-huh. to consider. Right. Um, so in the Bomb Squad, I have Max Rothman, who's the lead, who's that, who runs the Bomb Squad. Uh-huh. So you know you know, when you look at some famous books that have, you know, conti- like characters that continue story into story out, like Robert Langdon in the Dan Brown story, mm-hmm. and, um, Alex Cross, uh, you know, certain characters that are repeated. I could imagine uh, Max Rothman from the Bomb Squad continuing his ventures, um, you know, World War One perhaps into World War II uh, with his Bomb Squad. Same thing with the um, my story about uh, hope city um this is called the alaskan adventures of percy hope so percy hope and his alaskan adventures will continue into Nome. so there's more ca- there's more stories to be told with that so that in itself if i could develop characters that way that could could, could live on like you know, think of james bond you know all the james Bond novels and such oh, like yeah. mm-hmm. or sherlock holmes you know, Sherlock Holmes too. You know, what's interesting about the James Bond and Sherlock Holmes stories is that everyone knows the story. Everyone knows yeah. the reason to happen. Everyone knows that James Bond is what what's gonna every story is gonna end up the same. Mm-hmm. He's gonna get the girl, he's gonna kill the bad guy. And say, and, and Sherlock Holmes is gonna f- just figure out some you know, some plot that no one else could figure out as a clever detective. Um, right. You still love, love the books, you still love the story. It's still something everyone connects to. So yeah, that's always something that you try to, to strive for to create these characters that become alive. Yeah. Like you feel you know them, you know Sherlock Holmes, you know James Bond, you know Robert Langdon. Um, you know these characters. They, they continue on for, on and on.:
2: mm-hmm. That is amazing. Neil, thank you so much for giving us this insight to your, to your writing and everything. We really appreciate you joining us today. Um, for all the, uh, for all, those, all our listeners out there uh, that are with us still and everything, and for those that will find this afterwards, uh, we've put all of the links um, in the comments section. Um, right now on the broadcast, you can see Neil's website, neilperrygordon.com. All the links to his social media and where you can find his works are in the comments below. Um, so you can uh, go there. You can find him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, you could go to his website to find out all the information on all of his books. Um, Neil, again, thank you so much. Again, you've got a fan here. I'm sold. Uh, so if, mm-hmm. no, if nothing mm-hmm. else this morning you've accomplished, you've got a fan and you've sold four books. So.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Mama, <laughs>
2: All right, guys. Uh, Thank you so much for tuning in this week. Again, Neil, thank you for being our guest. And everybody else out there, stay eclectic, everybody.